Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Pick up some interesting feedback from one of my clients. Having a few technical difficulties on Memorial Day. Um, sorry about that. This is one of those holidays that, you know, you can't wait for because it's going to signify and symbolize summer. And yet, when it comes, it comes too quickly. And, of course, through COVID-19, heck, we have figured out that there are plenty of opportunities to just lay back and do nothing but enjoy nature, enjoy simplicity, and talk to my listeners and my readers and my viewers. Uh, so I got this, this some interesting feedback from this man who said, you know, Carol, I've really been in good recovery now for over a year, and my wife just doesn't seem to trust me. She doesn't seem to see my positive changes. I don't know what to do. And, you know, I'm always telling them, hang in there. It takes three to five years to really see those positive changes. But I tell you, between two and a half and three years, you will see a marked difference in your partner if you're working a good recovery program. Now, that seems like a long time to wait, but like my guys in group suggest, they suggest, hey, you've been acting out for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Give her a break and allow her to mistrust you for at least, at least three to five. Now, you know, in the program we say, a day at a time, right? Because I know that if you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to do this another two years, and it can be excruciating. You could be doing lots and lots and lots of positive things, and not only does she not see them or trust them, also challenges you on that. Now, tonight we have a fascinating guest, Joshua Nichols, and he has coined this phrase caused Reflect, uh, reflection aggression. Now, I don't know if you've heard this, but reflection aggression is an interesting concept that we both have seen in couples. He coined it after hearing the same question over and over and over again from 
sex addicts that he's been working with. And that would be, is it possible that my partner is gaslighting me? Okay, so we're talking the addict here is saying, is it possible that my partner is gaslighting me? Well, I would tell you absolutely not. Uh, She has no reason to want to make you feel crazy. But she is making you feel crazy, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And Joshua calls it reflection aggression. And, you know, he noticed that at some point in, in recovery, not at the beginning, but definitely not at the end, probably right around the middle, partners would often become angry and maybe even hostile toward the addict in recovery. Now, if I've got addicts out there who are in good recovery, I bet you can relate. You're like, yeah, you know, I could do no right. Everything I did was wrong, even when it was right with a capital R, and um, it was perfectly right. Well, the addict felt like, like this could be gaslighting because they would become confused. Why is she acting this way towards me? I'm really trying to do the right thing here. And it's almost like she so doesn't believe me, it feels crazy-making. Well, partners will often go through this transitional experience of finally feeling safe enough to take their eyes off the addict and focus on themselves in such a way they haven't experienced before. And when that happens, wow, that begins some really good recovery, and yet it feels so unsafe to the partner. So Joshua Nichols, who's a licensed marital and family therapist and certified sex addiction therapist, he's a co-owner of Family Solutions Counseling, and he does a lot of writing on things that he is discovering as he gets more and more and more and more experiences working with families and couples, sex addicts and partners. So I can't wait to find out more about this reflection aggression and, as he calls it, transitional distrust. Now, i got to tell you, This may be why Patrick Kearns told me that it might be more beneficial to be a woman working with a sex addict. You all have heard this story, right? I was in the cafeteria, shoulder to shoulder with Patrick Kearns, which is absolutely impossible. He is a tall, tall man, and I'm no taller than five foot three. And um, I said, hey, Patrick. I got about four questions for you. And he said, well, you got a captive audience. I'm waiting on them to serve me. He said, do you think it's a problem that I'm a woman and I'm going to be working primarily with male sex addicts? Certainly there are, there are female sex addicts too. But I really was talking about that dynamic. And he looked at me dead in the eyes and he said, why no? I think you're probably going to be an easier person for them to confide in. Well, that was um, reassuring, very reassuring. The second thing I asked him is, hey, Patrick, do you think it matters that I'm not in recovery? It seems like all my colleagues here that are going through this training are in recovery, and I'm not in recovery. And he looked at me and he said, well, Carol, do you have to have cancer to treat cancer? And I said, no. He said, well, that's my answer. And then you've heard my third one. I said, Patrick, if there was one thing that I could do that you would believe would truly make a huge difference in my ability to provide good care, therapy, and services to the sex addicts that I'm working with. What would it be? said, oh, hands down, Carol. you got to start a sex addiction therapy group 
for men. And that was so interesting because I had had, I had actually run with a colleague over 2,000 women's groups, just women's groups, you know, therapeutic, uh, clinical women's groups for any woman, not a partner necessarily, not a trauma survivor, but just any woman that needed self-esteem, did want to work through a trauma, wanted to do family of origin work. And these women were so dedicated. And I would do groups 15 weeks at a time. I still do that with the, the guys I work with now. And, and then they'd have the option of re-upping for another series, another 15 weeks. Well, the average amount of time a woman spent in our groups was about two and a half years. And by doing it this way, we also could graduate people, and if we really needed to get out, maybe they had a sick child, maybe they had a Wednesday night Bible study they wanted to do. Regardless, they could do that. And so I said, well, I'll give it a try. And I went right home, and I said, I am going to create a men's group, but I had some preconceived notions about men and groups. I was so, so, so wrong. I didn't think men would be as invested in group therapy as women had been. Was I ever wrong? Once a man gets into one of my groups, he gets so much support and so much fellowship and so many clinical gains, Patrick Carnes was exactly right, that I have to kick them out of the group. I'm like, hey, you're graduated. You're doing really, really well. You're doing amazing. I, you know, we, we got to put somebody in this group that really needs it. You no longer need group therapy. You got this thing down. And they didn't want to leave. Another major difference was that these men Never missed a session. (laughs) Now, one might argue that maybe it's because they were self, maybe they knew their wives, if they still had them, would take care of the kids or handle the homestead, but they never, ever, ever missed. And I was, like, so happy because I like good attendance at everything I do. I got a couple of listeners that are my clients, they listen every single week, and They've never, missed, they've never missed a session with me in like three or four years. I'm trying to give them the boot too. I'm like, you guys are rocking it. You don't need me anymore. They're like, oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> and, you know, when do you allow somebody to maintain supportive therapy for their own mental health? I have to agree. I think that should be an option for everybody. So my point is that my men's group were the most phenomenal experiences. They had this fellowship going. They supported each other in the middle of the night, on the weekends, during holidays, and they really spoke the voice of reason. You know, when I came out with Help Her Heal, these guys knew my concepts better than anybody I had ever talked to individually. And they'd say, ADR her, ADR her. That's what you should have done, man. She wouldn't have been so upset if you had ADR'd her. Now, I hope that you know what ADR is. If you've been listening to my show, you know that's an empathy formula. And it means acknowledge the issue and the pain, validate the feeling, validate that feeling, and reassure her with humility that you are different and you're going to keep working on the relationship to build her safety, to help her heal, and to be the healthiest couple ever. That's ADR. Acknowledge the pain, validate the feeling, and reassure her. And... When you do that, communication really makes a difference. Speaking of difference, I am going to be doing a workshop. It is not on my website, so don't go looking for it. 
that I'm doing a three-and-a-half-hour, actually it's a three-hour workshop, and it's Saturday, July 18th from 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to 1 p.m. And I ask that you do the online course first so that you get the basic concepts to help or heal. I'm a big believer in repetition. Repetition is what will make your relationship. So you take my online course. That is on sexhelpwithcarolthecoach.com. And then this workshop is very, very, very affordable. I can't give you the price. We're not allowed to do that on the air, but it's really affordable. And, you know, we're going to be talking about the concepts, and then there's going to be a question and answer period. So mark your calendars, July 18th. I'll let you know next week when you can go on my website, sign up for the workshop, get that online course um, so that you get the information from me first and foremost, and then let's just all rock it together. I can have, you know, 20 or 30 people in that seminar. Because we are always trying to improve relationships and the coupleship. And, you know, that, again, is why I have Joshua Nichols coming on tonight on Memorial Day. Um, what a gracious thing he is willing to do. Licensed marital and family therapist, also a CSAT. And, you know, he's going to describe this interesting concept that many people, many addicts, confuse as gaslighting when it's not gaslighting. And, and boy, Josh, i got to tell you, so many people get gaslighting wrong anyway. They think if they are disagreeing with their spouse, that's automatically gaslighting when, you know, when they're debating it back and forth. Um, and you and I know gaslighting is a serious, communication that's that's intended to make you feel crazy so that you doubt yourself. So I am so happy you're going to be talking about reflection aggression and talking about how it, it is really different than gaslighting. Tell me, what made you come up with this concept? Well, first of all, Carol, thank you again for having me on your show. I um, am grateful to be back on here talking to you. Um, so... My- yeah, uh, th- this came about because, you know, as a as a sex addiction therapist, you know, in a practice where we specialize in working with uh, uh, couples that have experienced betrayal trauma to this level, um, we see a lot of couples that are trying to, you know, rebuild and mend their relationships, and this is one thing that just kept coming up over and over with sex addicts that I've worked with where, you know, seemingly, you know, further along in their recovery, they would start to really uh, look at their partner's responses to their recovery efforts, and they would come into my office with a really genuine uh, tone of concern and just sit down before me, and, and, and I could just see the confusion on their face when they would say, you know, is it is it possible that my partner, that my spouse is gaslighting me? And you know, the first few times I've heard that, I, you know, I just kind of dismissed it. I was like, no, they're they're not gaslighting you. But then it just kept coming up over and over again with more addicts. And uh, so I really started to take a deeper look in it. And um, you know, given what they're experiencing, I could see how it could be a little bit confusing to them. It's it's not gaslighting. I felt like we really need to put a term to it, to what they're experiencing, because um, gaslighting um, is definitely embedded in, you know, deception and dishonesty. Reflection aggression is embedded in pain and injustice, you know, and um, what partners are doing in this with reflection aggression is very, very different from what's happening with gaslighting, although it can feel a little similar because it, you know, the addicts hear about gaslighting and, and know that that's a form of crazy making. So when they when they feel like am I going, when they ask themselves, "Am I going crazy?" they they kind of it kind of takes them back to the beginning of recovery where they're like, "I remember I remember my partner uh, I remember addressing that in recovery where they were addressing how I made them feel like they were going crazy." So that's why they they're they're very aware of the the term gaslighting by that point. You know, I get that. Now, one more time, 
the difference between gaslighting and reflection aggression is is the response that the partner gives in conjunction to, it almost seems, because I was reading one of her articles, almost in, in response to a vulnerability that she doesn't really feel ready to to get to that person. You know, you talk about partners don't necessarily trust themselves. They don't trust themselves because they don't want to get duped again. Is that oh, yeah. kind of reflection again? Yeah, I think um, I think you know in the beginning stages of recovery with partners, we we actually uh, another term that I coined is called transitional distrust, where it just makes sense uh, to not trust right now, right in the beginning. You know, when you've uh, been broadsided so hard and your reality has been tipped on its edge in one fell swoop, that's one thing that I, where my uh, I have this sometimes even an overwhelming sense of compassion for partners because I just can't imagine what it's like in one moment's time to feel like your whole world was just erased or tipped upside down. Like everything was something one in one moment and then another thing in another moment, you know, and it's just got to be so overwhelming. And so um, my, I just want to let partners out there know they're listening to this, that if, if they've decided to, to uh, do couple recovery then I admire them so much. Even though if they decide not to, that's okay too. But it just takes a lot of courage to get in there with with the um, when, when they're dealing with such a deep wound from their partner. So, but yeah, like kind of. So yes, there there is uh, this concept that I call transitional distrust, where it's just more of a um, you know, even though you're doing something different, I don't trust it yet because. Uh, I don't recognize it because, you know, we're, that's what we're teaching, helping addicts learn to do is live a healthy life, and that's different. And although it's good, they still don't trust it in the beginning. But I think reflection aggression starts to happen. It's not at the beginning. It's definitely not at the end of recovery. It's probably, if we could identify a middle, it's probably somewhere right before is how I would describe it. After the addict has got good footing, in their recovery and starting to experience stability in their recovery. So in other words, they start to become safe and, and then it allows the partner to take their eyes off of the addict, you know, and, and because if you think about it, you know, if you're just kind of from a, just an evolutionary standpoint, you know, your, your brain's job is to keep you alive. If you're in danger, then you want to keep your eye on, on the ball type thing. You want to keep your eye on the source of danger, the thing that could hurt you. So when the addict starts to become healthy, they're not dangerous anymore. And that allows the partners to really look at themselves in a way that they haven't been able to because they're, they're kind of just naturally forced to keep their eye on, on the source of danger. And when they do... They, you know, mirror, I like using, I like the term reflection because it, it implies or kind of feels like looking into a mirror. And mirrors aren't very forgiving, you know. They, they show you everything and the the uh, the depths of the wound. They show you, you know, the, um, the sources of the wound. And then kind of what makes it even a harder experience is that the partner kind of pans out a little bit and they see that. The betrayal wound isn't the only wound they're dealing with. And it's just a lot to endure when they are able to, to, to take their eyes off the addict, look at themselves, and, and, they, and they can see the full, um, you know, the full effects or the full uh, ramifications of the, of the betrayal that they experienced. Yeah, you know, it's almost, Joshua, like they are – they they are fighting within themselves because it is such a primal response to want to, to defend yourself and fight, flight, or freeze. And and so here they are. The addict is in good recovery, and they're beginning to get over the hump of the next transition, and all of a sudden there's a stopper. And it shows up as this reflection aggression. And so what would the symptomatology be that 
you might see with reflection aggression? Well, so that's a good, very good question. Um, the a couple of the symptoms would uh, would look a little bit like gaslighting. That's why it can be confused with gaslighting by the by the addict, and, and maybe even by the therapist. You know, if we're not careful. Um, but you know the 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 effort or the intent behind it is to shift the spotlight off of their self and onto something else. You know, so that that sounds a little bit like gaslighting, right? So like, oh, I don't want you, I, I don't want you to figure out what I'm doing. So I need to make you think you're crazy, so that you, so that the spotlight goes off of me and onto you. You know. Um, so with reflection aggression, they're not trying to make anybody feel crazy. They just, they don't want that. When the when they look into the mirror, the mirror is held up to them. Um, what they see can be so overwhelming that they just want want it to be put down. You know. So that's why, like, uh, I was trying to actually look for a term that fit before coining the term reflection aggression. Uh, so I knew gaslighting didn't fit. But I also looked at, uh, do you remember uh, the old Moonchild by proxy? I think it's called a fictitious disorder now. Um, but, uh-huh. you know, it, uh, for viewers that are my age, uh, you know, I'm 40 years old. They might remember uh, the movie The Sixth Sense was a movie where we saw um, the, this uh, really interesting disorder where, um, you know, mothers or caregivers would make their children sick um, and uh, it's to get the attention onto them. So they wanted them to, they had to make them sick so that they, the, the children would need them and they could care for them. And it's kind of this attention seeking thing. It was obvious, very dangerous. And that movie cost the, cost the life of a child. So I kind of even looked at that to see, because um, the way addicts would describe it, you know, is that it kind of feels like they're, they want me to be sick. You know, like they, they want, they remind me that I'm the sick one. I'm the one that did this, you know, but it's not that they want them to be sick. It's just that it's the experience of looking into that mirror. So overwhelming, they want to shift that spotlight off of them, you know, which is good. It's a good thing, I think, because it's about pacing. That's what's one of the big differences, in my opinion, of gaslighting and reflection aggression is that, you know, gaslighting has the intent to keep the truth hidden where reflection aggression has an intent to pace, which partners definitely need to do, you know? So it starts to get overwhelming, so they need to get the spotlight off for a while. And they don't know how to do that necessarily in a healthy way in the beginning, so sometimes it can be a bit aggressive, you know? Um, Another symptom that you might look for is just the, is the partner or the, you know, the addict partner questioning their own reality, you know? So, Again, one of the very similar to gaslighting is, you know, when the addict partner starts to say things like, am I going crazy here? Like, am I doing the right thing? I, th- I think I'm doing the right thing. We've been in recovery for nine months or a year or whatever, and I feel like I got a good flow, you know. But yet um, they're coming at me so hard with all reminding me of all my misgivings, all the pain that I've caused. And, and then I start to question, maybe I'm not doing this right you know and so that's another thing to look for yes Um, if you were working with somebody that was having that kind of difficulty what would you tell her what would you tell him well um you say tell her in terms of like her the partner Uh uh-huh absolutely Yeah. yeah um uh, yeah, so this kind of this is this is challenging. They, um, you know, I think uh, for the therapist involved, you know, they they really got to be gentle and compassionate about it. Uh, so when they introduce the concept of reflection aggression, you know, um, it's hard to kind of get around that that this is a partner thing. You know, that in other words, that there is a, a, a process in this dynamic that they kind of have to own themselves and for the sake of their own healing. And, and so it's really important to be compassionate toward them about that because it's, um, it's a sign of progress, in my opinion. So if you start 
when you get to that point where reflection, where you feel like the reflection aggression is really present, um, this is a sign of progress that we're moving forward, we're moving along, and this is a, a, a normal experience for partners that have experienced this level of betrayal. Um, it's it's hard for them at times to to accept that because it's you know it, there's so much injustice at play in their life experiences, especially with the addict. That it's it's like you know like this thing happened to me, and then now I have and now I'm. It, it can kind of feel like that they, they that you might be saying that they're becoming some kind of aggressor, you know, some kind of. Um, culprit you know some, it's like it's some kind of bad thing and you got to be real careful not to not let them walk away with that meaning because that's not what it is it, this is a process of healing they need to feel angry you know they need to let themselves go through this they haven't been able because they've been so focused on the addict and and, and uh, keeping themselves out of danger they have all these feelings that they need to let themselves go through so that their body can heal appropriately I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, no, that that does answer my question. Now, you know, you talked about the blog in which you really describe the difference between gaslighting and reflection aggression, and and how partners respond to the reality. Help our listeners know how they can read some of the material on reflection aggression, so that they can better understand if they experience it or if they are the addict experiencing the byproduct of it. Where can I read your articles? So uh, the the easiest way to do it is just to go to our website, which is familysolutionsok.com. And, excuse me, and if it, um, you know, if you you just scroll down onto the page, uh, some of our more recent blogs are, are showing up on the front page. But if not, they can just click on the blog link and they can search, you know, reflection aggression in the search bar and it'll pull it up. And probably they could also just Google reflection aggression in, in my name, Joshua Nichols, and it'll probably show up. But also, like, I've also put together um, a PDF version of this so that uh, people can download and print off and use as they want to. And if, uh, they, if your listeners want to just send in an email through our website, uh, they're welcome to do that and and just ask for that PDF version, and I'll, I'll be happy to send it to them. I can also send it to you, Carol, if there's a place that you can upload it to, and they can just download download that for free is fine. Well, either way is fine with me. I'd be happy to have you email it to me, and then I'll put that up for for our listeners. Um, but I like I like the fact that they can go to your website and read many, many, many of the blogs that you've done. I mean, you have really worked uh, diligently on betrayal trauma and a fair recovery, healthy sexuality. I mean, you have made it your mission uh, at Family Solutions to do just that. Tell me a little bit about um, how should an addict respond if he believes his partner is using reflection aggression? What would you like them to think? What would you like them to feel? And most importantly, what would you like them to know? So this is going to be the next blog topic uh, on reflection aggression that I'm going to do. It's going to be a follow-up because it's a question I get a lot. Um, And the simple answer to that is compassion. Um, So when, when people ask, you know, how should they respond, it's with compassion. And a lot of times they think I'm talking about compassion for the partner, which I am. That is part of it. You definitely need, in in most uh, in most of their recovery efforts, need to show compassion to their partners because of what they've experienced. But they also need to be compassionate toward themselves. Um, part of uh, recovery for addicts is recognizing that what has happened is not a life sentence for them. And uh, learning to forgive themselves is is hard because it kind of feels it feels wrong to some degree to let themselves off the hook in, in a way you know which they're not letting themselves off the hook. To me, when when you learn to forgive yourself, you're actually owning what you've done and um, and you've and you've made the appropriate efforts to to heal and to make compensation. Uh, so. Um, 
helping them along and, and learn to be compassionate toward themselves through this process will, I think, in a lot of ways, will will allow them to be comp- compassionate to their partners as their partners go through this. Okay, and so you are asking the recovering addict to do what I consistently ask him to do, and that is to be empathetic, to, to do a lot of validating of feelings. I ask my addicts to, you know, say, yeah, I know I'm responsible for this pain or this mistrust or this distrust, and I'm here to make this better, you know, because obviously they're working on their individual recovery, and now they have to work on the relational recovery. So just in general, give our listeners three tips that you would tell a recovering addict to do just to build that trust. Well, one big tip that I give addicts is to learn to agree with the partner. And so even though, like in, especially when they're experiencing reflection aggression, that a lot of things can be thrown out at them that it'd be easy to say, you know, that's not what happened or that's not what I meant. And what I try to remind uh, addicts to do is to remember that, that, yeah, when you, when you think of the specific words that are coming out of someone's mouth, you know, they might be 90% wrong in the content. You, you have to find that nugget of truth. You know, you got to really dig deep. I, th- I really do feel like that's our responsibility, really, in all couple relationships in communication. It's easy to point out where we think people are wrong, but what are they onto? What what is it about what they're saying that has some truth to it? And that's what I want to hone in on, and I want to acknowledge that. So, learning to say you're right, you're right. I did do those things. You know, um, and acknowledge those things that you did, and you can, and they can learn to do that in a way where they're not admitting or, or, or um, you know, saying, uh, yeah, admitting to things that they didn't do. There are ways to definitely um, acknowledge that nugget of truth without saying, "I just, I'm just, you know, the the worst thing that ever happened to this planet." Um, another thing I would have them do. Um, in addition to um, learning to agree with their partner, is to uh, is is to empathize with them. So um, this is re- this is what I call really good medicine. This is what addicts don't realize is they have the best meds for healing, and and that comes in the form of empathy, which is also very difficult for them. Um, but if they can. Uh, to, if they can put themselves in that position and think and try to imagine, you know, if what happened to them happened to me, you know, how would I feel about that? How long would it take me to recover from that? Then they can find themselves in, in that space, in that headspace to be able to meet their partner emotionally where, where they need to meet them and, uh, and empathize with them. As part of that, and I'll just be the third tip, um, in learning to empathize um, is, uh, man, it, it just slipped my mind. I hate it when that happens. <clears throat> Hold on one second. So, yeah, so uh, in, uh, the, I was talking about the best medicine. Um, the third tip is to let their partner know that they also think about it from time to time and they feel bad about it from time to time. So, you know, remorse and and the sadness that comes with what has been done is not something that uh, just needs to be completely removed from the picture once an addict has started to work on forgiveness. In fact, they, to me, true forgiveness of self is is learning to be comfortable with not comfortable, but learning to be accepting of certain feelings that are uncomfortable and not being afraid of them and acknowledge them at appropriate times. So. It's good for an addict to like come home from work and say, you know, I, I really had a hard time today because I just couldn't get this off my mind. And that really lets partners know what it means, that, that they are a human being, you know, that, that they are someone that hurts and someone that suffers and not just someone that was out to hurt them. 
You know, that's, that is exactly what I talk about when I talk about empathy. It's really putting yourself in the other person's shoes, being able to see it from their point of view, and conveying that to them. Um, empathy is the best medicine in the world. Now, obviously, you want couples to get through this together, if at all possible. And so how long do you work with a couple, typically, before you, you begin to see some changes that really involve trust? It, you know, as you probably know this, too, it really depends on the couple and, and, um, and their level of investment. Sometimes it takes couples a, a little bit longer to, to really commit to the recovery process. But once that, once that commitment happens, I think they actually start to see changes almost immediately in the, sen- in the sense of that they're looking into this world of uncertainty and it's scaring the crap out of them, basically. And so, it's, you know, and I can empathize with couples that, that um, are hesitant to do that because, like I said earlier, the, you know, their, their world of certainty has been tipped upside down and now they're just looking into this empty space and trying to figure out how to chart new territory. So, um, but one thing, one piece of encouragement I want to give couples is that when you commit to the process, it's not going to be like this forever. You know, when you're just starting out and you're hurting, it's not going to. Be, this is not a forever thing. You know, you find um, a therapist or a resource, or a support group, uh, and, and build your your team of people uh, to help you along. And um, and you can find, you know, peace, calm, happiness, however you want to describe it you know, that place within yourself where the world just doesn't seem so sinister and dark. Um, And, you know, I would say, like, for couples that really have committed to the process within, you know, a matter of months, they're starting to see that there is a place that they're they're headed and they're they're itching to get there. There's still work to do when they get there because we've got to help chart it out. But that part's um, a a little bit, uh, it's not as uh, intense or as uh, intimidating at the beginning stages. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, I got to ask you, I typically work with a couple um, immediately doing early couples recovery work, and so I'm teaching them about communication, and I'm teaching them about boundaries, and I'm teaching them about empathy, and I'm teaching them about APSAT's three-pronged model safety and stabilization, then the grieving and mourning stage, and then restoration. And so I usually don't see that real turnaround until, oh, I would say 16 to 18 months into his or hers, whoever the addict is, good recovery. Do you see that correlation, too, that the better recovery, the better the chances that she will begin to trust again? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I definitely can back that up, you know, the 16 to 18 months. But something to kind of put in, in there, too, is that, you know, the, the intensity that couples feel in the beginning starts to, starts to taper off as the crisis, as they get out of crisis mode, and they can, and they're starting to get their footing in recovery, and they start, in, in like, probably like what you do, Carol, is, uh, adding structure to their recovery. That's actually a huge piece in our practice in helping couples um, you know, commit to the process is because once we can get that structure added, then they can breathe again and they can see that there's a, a, a world of danger ahead of them that they got that they were going to have to trek through, but they feel like they can do it. But to, but like you said, you know, to that, that turnaround moment, you know, where they can, they start to see that the that there is a strong possibility that this relationship is going to make it is uh, it's going to be uh, several months down the road. But it's, like I said earlier, it's not a forever thing. And and when you're you're just starting out and you hear a therapist say you know 16 to 18 months, that can feel a little overwhelming. But that's largely because you feel like it's going to be 16 to 18 months of crisis, <laughs> and it's not going to be 16 to 18 months of crisis. 
we're going to try to get you through that fairly quickly. You know, but then, uh, but yeah, there's some work to be done and and uh, in getting through that grieving, grieving stage, which is a very important piece um, of that, because this is a real loss. I mean, this is, it's an ambiguous loss, right? It's like, I, I'm still married to this person, or I'm still, this is the, the, the person I'm still with or trying to be with, but we, but I'm not, I, I lost that marriage at the same time. I lost that relationship. And so we have to really work at building something new and to me, trust comes in that not with, um, you know, the, um, all the, check, the boxes being checked off the list. That's not when trust comes. Trust comes with seeing that we've created new, a new process that is embedded in, in, in reality. And, um, and it's, it's got, um, you know, the pieces of it, or we, we've built a, uh, built it based upon our principles and our morals and our integrity, and we both follow that real closely, and we're not burying our heads in the sand, you know. And 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 that's a process that we learn to trust. If it looks like the old process, you're just not going to trust it. Well, and you know, you and I both know that that is what is so delusional for a partner because. She thought she knew what she knew. She had no idea that it was any different. And so now she doubts herself. And part of your um, example of reflection aggression is about that very, um, very feeling of I thought I knew what I knew, and then I found out I didn't. And so now I'm feeling better about his recovery, but I don't trust myself or him again. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, one of the harder pieces is is where they say, like, um, is maybe he's doing recovery or maybe he's mastered the art of deception where he leaves no breadcrumbs behind. You know, it's a very um, uh, difficult place to be, and it's, it's a place that we, we call that um, a liminal state of existence. It's a, a point in time where you're neither this but not yet that. And it is not a fun place to be. You can't tell up from down, left from right. You know, you, you thought you were this, or you thought he was that. And all those things have been thrown into question. Every, everything in moving forward goes on to the chopping block and examined and, and, uh, and, and rewritten, uh, possibly rewritten. And so, you know, you were talking earlier about the fact that she – well, they both know how what a dark world this was and what a dark world it could be. And and I am super excited that you have explained a concept that can happen and they can understand so that they can move beyond it. Um, transitions are always very, very, very tough, aren't they? Yeah, and... You know, in, in ref, and I'm glad you mentioned the word transition because reflection aggression is definitely a transitional phenomenon, you know, and it's still something that I don't even quite understand completely and I'm continuing to learn and examine and, and I hope to, uh, uh, to, to continue to write about it as, um, as I learn more about it and experiences. So these are just, uh, this is just like a, a very new concept that I think uh, that many, uh, the feedback that I've gotten from a lot of people like you and others, that uh, they're definitely seeing this, but I've also gotten a lot of questions that I haven't thought about either that I'm wanting to explore and examine. So I hope, I hope that we can, and other people too might take it and, um, and, and, you know, pose some new thoughts on it as well. You know, I absolutely agree with you, and I, I'm really excited about this field because, let's face it, we're all pioneers. Sex addiction has been around in a lot of different ways for centuries and centuries and centuries, but the Internet really made it so accessible, so affordable, so anonymous that it put a lot of compulsive behavior on steroids. And so, really, really, we are dealing with partners that could never have imagined how this got so compulsive. And and I'm glad we're at the forefront, and I'm glad that we're pioneers, and I'm glad we're helping them um, 
if you will, with the um, front line. So I want to remind everybody, I am talking with Joshua Nichols, who's a licensed marital and family therapist. He's a CSAT, a certified sex addiction therapist, and he's co-owner of Family Solutions Counseling. And you can see the the clinic there, the services they offer at www.familysolutionsok.com. And you can also find more information at www.youtube.com forward slash recovery TV for you. So I'm glad that you're doing that because people love video. They love video and they love podcasts. Haven't, don't you agree? Oh yeah, yeah, um, and I'm I'm really envious. I don't know why I'm I'm intimidated more by the podcast than I am by the video. I think because I can go in and cut out my flaws, and so I know you guys can do that too. But um, I'm really proud of you for doing what you're doing. But yes, the uh, the the recovery TV was uh, something that I decided to put together to just try to get out, get some valuable information out from from real professionals on certain mental health, relational health, and recovery issues. And so, yeah, I would definitely encourage your listeners to go, ch- to go check that out. And, and those are also, um, you know, there are certain videos that we are, um, that we are either redoing or elaborating on because we are, continu- we are continu- continuing to learn. Like you said, you know, we're, we're pioneers here, but part of that means that we are students of this field and there's so much to be learned. I, I definitely can say I can tell you more about what I don't know than what I do know. Um, because it, it just gets it just gets broader and broader the more I dive into things. Oh, I get that. And that's what I find too, Joshua. It has been a pleasure to talk with you tonight. Thank you again for sharing reflection aggression and what that is and I know I've got you set up for a couple more podcasts so that we can continue talking about a lot of issues that are so pertinent to addicts, to partners, to the coupleship, and to recovery. Thanks again, Joshua Nichols. Thank you. Can't wait to talk again. All right. Have a good one, and happy Memorial Day. You too. Thanks. Uh-huh. So, again, I'm so happy to have had Joshua Nichols here. I mean, how kind of him to come join me on a holiday. So sometimes I air a repeat show. I hardly ever do that, but sometimes I do, and here's why I didn't. Because <laughs> I'm going to be on vacation for the next couple of weeks, and so I'm going to play some of my favorite shows. I might even play Dr. Patrick Collins um, or Claudia Black or Taruna Stephenson. I mean, these are some heavy hitters in our field. And, and so, as always, I'm so appreciative of you. I want you to have a good holiday. Um, think about that course. Go to my um, website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Get that online course, Help Her Heal. Take that and then get signed up for my workshop in July. We will talk to you soon. And as I say at the end of every show, there'll only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week. <laughs>